0: Vic, it's such a pleasure to speak to you, and I know you must be enormously busy at this moment in time. And as you know, I often speak about life being a journey. So my first question is: Could you just give an audience, the audience, a little bit of your journey to date, from being that uh, council school boy right the way through to um, to being the head of Passmore's? Um I was. I was the youngest of,
1: youngest of three boys who went to the um, the secondary modern as it would have been called back in the day. So um, if you failed your 11 plus, you went to my school. If you passed, you went to the grammar school. So my sister went there and I went to the, the secondary modern um, and just just was really lucky. I had some great teachers and um, parents that valued education. So it was always part of a really big part of our family. So um, it, it sort of all became a fairly natural Natural progress really. My big brother set the standard, he was the first boy to go to university from my school. So, and uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was, I was just fortunate to be in the right environment, I think. Um, and and then it was, yeah, it was, it, it for me, it, it became, um, sort of the next step became the inevitable next step once I'd started down the process of, I knew I wanted to be a teacher from mid teens, um had always once I'd made my mind up, you know, sport was always the biggest thing for me. If if it wasn't ball shaped, I wasn't interested for about the first fifteen years of my life, I think. Um, and so it just became a natural progression. I had a fantastic PE teachers wanting to be a PE teacher and then just set my mind on on doing that as best I could. And then once I'm in once I was in the job, I always want to be the best I can be. And for me being a head teacher was the sort of the pinnacle of my profession. So the, the sort of the journey became one to, towards that because I needed that focus, and um, I was I was a bit odd. I think I left I left um, university with a real clear plan that I wanted to be ahead by the time you know I was forty. I wanted to have enough energy to to do it as well as I could, and then but not to do it for too long, I guess. And always intended to be on the golf course at fifty-five. Um, so it sort of once I'd made my had a really clear decision about what I wanted to do, the rest of it. Didn't, did it fit It sort of felt inevitable, I guess, because I I was going to work towards the next goal, um, and 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 <laughs> here I am um, in the middle of a national crisis, trying to run a school to to keep hospitals open and food being delivered. It's, it's yeah, it one it does the inevitability does feel that that was why <laughs> it was going to happen in that direction. But I guess it it comes down to having a very clear aim, which is what I had.
0: Yeah, I think I was really similar. Um, what's really interesting and why I smile when I listen to your stories, I come from a, from a council estate as well. And one of my my super north star, my ambitions were originally to be an athlete and then a PE teacher. And I was really clear. I was influenced by a phenomenal teacher called Mister Tiffany, who literally taught me, probably every sport, but taught me the basic things really well. And although I didn't become a PE teacher. Um, what it enabled me to do when I went into the military gave me all all those gifts that I needed, that ability to lead, which is an interesting journey as well. Because leadership, I think, is something that's a, a development um, and something you learn as you go through. And you said you were very inspired by a number of individuals on that journey. Who were the people that most inspired you to be uh, to be a head or to be a teacher? And what was the what were the key aspects that they gave you?
1: I, I guess firstly, I, I've got to probably. Say my big brother, um, Trevor's ten years older than me, um, and very much the school that we went to was the school that produced the the plumbers and the bricklayers, like my dad. Um, And and he he wanted to go to university and set his own focus on that. And he wasn't necessarily, um, excuse me, Trevor, the most naturally gifted academically, and had to work incredibly hard at it. And I guess you know in those in those formative years of sort of six, seven, eight when my brother was doing his A level and seeing him up till eleven o'clock. We all you know, the three boys shared a room. So seeing him sitting up in the in the bedroom until sort of eleven, twelve o'clock at night doing his work, um, because he had to work at it. That's I've never really I'll be honest, I've never really thought of that um in that way before and I've probably never said it to him either. Um but that that w- will have had a massive influence I think on the fact that you could see that he was driven and wanted to go do something and that that washed off i guess on, on me and my other brother um my that that sort of developed through sport for me you know my mum and dad my mum and dad are both incredibly sporty um and they turned up to everything you know literally everything if we would if we were opening an envelope they'd have been there and that was that sort of investment as a family um was was also really nurturing and developing for me i think um so that that, that those early influences around my big brother probably were were much more influential i would probably ever given credit for if i'm honest and then a variety of teachers you know from primary, from primary school clive streets at primary school who was the designated pe man at the primary school as it used to be in those days um you know he he got us playing cricket and rugby and things that lots of primary schools didn't do um and playing matches and so that that got me in the sporting side of stuff and then I was lucky I went from, from primary school with him as a really good role model through to secondary school with lots and lots of them. A form tutor who made me love English, which you know, was probably not going to be the easiest thing to do because it wasn't a ball. Um, you know, Mike Conway, who was my, both my form tutor and my English teacher for five years, he, you know, he was a, he's definitely an influence in a, in a very unusual way in the fact that he was, much, he was about you know, learning and classroom and discipline, I guess, around that, and that was helpful. And then a typical boys sort of comp um in that part of the world um in the 80s you know most of the teachers ran a sports team lots of the teachers ran sports teams and so you know i and if there was a game if there was a team i was putting myself forward for it so i got to be influenced by lots of models. Well, almost all male um it was an all boys school that tended to be the case but you know so from frank jennings who was the head of pe um who i was Absolutely delighted his school invited me to his retirement do a few years ago just after Educate had been on. Um and uh, I went and I went and sort of turned up as a surprise to his retirement do, so that was lovely. Um Jeff Bevan, you know, John Hales, John Roffell, all of these people, it's mainly through they they invested in sports teams and gave up their time freely. And I could see that and you know, there was a real feeling for me that they'd given me opportunities that probably well, I know the council of state boys around me weren't getting and they weren't, um, you know, being out, off to, to learn how to be a football referee because the PE teacher had signed me up for it and then actually took me there at the weekend to make sure I could do the course. And so I, w- I was really fortunate to have lots of really driven um, and focused adults around me that I guess saw that I had a drive as well and then invested in me.
0: No, I love that. And what's what's fantastic is as I go through your, your journey, I remember or I remember going to, again, a, a massive comp. Um, well, it must have been 1, 15, 1600 people at least. And again, all the teachers did do a sport or they took you out or they were interested in something and they they give their time after school, which I think has always been that yeah. for me where my original, my, my early mentors definitely came from, as well as my mum and dad, because they were, again, quite driven in, in a number of different ways. I've got four brothers as well, and we're all different and we're all motivated and encouraging, encouraged in different ways. What do you think parents can do at this moment in time to make sure that, again, their children are not missing out on things whilst they have them at home?
1: I, I think we've got to look at it as an opportunity, Floyd. You know, the it, our our life is different at the moment. Um, I think Nicholas Sturgeon said, if your if your life's normal, you're not doing it right right now. Um, and I think that's really sort of hits the nail on the head for me. Um, if if we expect to do what we've always done while this is going on, then we're gonna we're gonna be very frustrated. And actually, we've got to look for the opportunity to do something different. You know, so I look at, you know, I sat and played a board game with my son yesterday. My son son's seventeen. You know. Um, he hasn't necessarily got the most interest in sitting and playing a ball game with his dad normally, but it's 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 something that we have the time to do, and there isn't the pre- the other pressures of stuff going on, having to go into work as much as we did and things. So I, I think it's really important as a, as a as a parent we view this as an opportunity to do things we will never have the time to do because once this is all over and we're back in work, the treadmill won't be slowed down; it will be speeded up, and you know we've got to a. Uh, We've got to try and work out how we balance that, I think, better. Because I think, you know, there'll be lots of people now you get frustrated and a bit stir crazy. But also with time to do things as a family they haven't been out to do before. So um, it is a mindset shift. And of course, the frustrations will always be there when, you know, everything takes a bit longer and you can't get what you used to have. But this is definitely an opportunity to, to try and do new things with your family and with, your, you know, with, with people around you just differently. I've, I've learned how, how long our meetings are uh, because we do them in person, how quick they can be if we do them on Zoom and we get the same amount of work done. Um, so it's, yeah, I think, I just think we've got to view it differently, Floyd. If, if we try to compare it to normal, then we're going to be really, it's going to be a really long time
0: know I agree. And I also think it actually brings us back to some of the things that are really important. Time being one of the most important elements of anybody's life. 160 hours per week, can't buy it, give it away or save it. So now it's about reflecting on the things that are really important. And as I said, maximising time. It's interesting when people have come to the end of their life and, people, and they've been asked, what would you reflect on as being really important now? And all of them have said it's about being around their family, spending more time at home, right playing enjoying life and it, we've got an opportunity now to to think about those things to spend that time engaging in some of the simplest things but where we have better communication and i think what's also interesting is communication well, is very I think
1: important the time, the, the time thing's interesting floyd all right because i look at um, stuff i try to do at school and you know, it's specifically around change and always the thing that we don't give enough for change to happen is the time for it to happen and I think education suffers from that. I'm sure I'm sure other services do, but from my perspective, education really suffers from that because you have you have an initiative, you have something you want to change, and, and the next one is waiting already, is already in the wings, waiting to happen while you're working on this one and you're minded of that. And so you 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 go through the process, you institute the change, you you get people doing what you want them to do, and then before they know it, you're going, okay, now we're going to do this. And I think all of those things, um, sort of around um, in, institutional change, for me in, in schools, is that let's let's get rid of the other stuff. It doesn't need to all, all happen at once. Priority list means you've got to give it time to happen. And I think that's the same with families. You've got to, you've got to have time to get to know each other, and to, you know we don't choose our family. That's that happens, in another way. And so I think just time generally is something that we're always in short, you know, it's always in short supply. And I think this is a real opportunity to just have a breath and work out what the priorities are and then actually giving those priorities time because I think we have priorities, but we don't necessarily give them enough time to, to happen or to improve or to make the changes we want.
0: No, I totally agree. And I'm going to come on to that in a bit more depth in a moment. Just before I lose track on one question, I must ask you, whilst you're at home, I know you've set your sights on, Doing some individual training for yourself, and I believe again you're a great communicator on Twitter, uh, and I think you um you put out about wanting to learn darts. Can you just tell me about what's happened as a result of you just expressing that thought that you're going to become a better dart player?
1: Yeah, I um so we we were given by one of my son's friends, gosh, probably five six years ago, a dart board and a, a dart mat and. And so i put it up in our in our games room um it's just the back room um we put it up in the games room and um we obviously played it a little bit because the um the damage around the walls from i'm presuming my son not me uh is definitely evident um and so it's just been sitting there so the other day i literally went into time let's get let's 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 get the dartboard out so um i, I, I searched for the darts and can only find two so i literally just took a picture on twitter saying Darts is going to be my skill I'm going to work on for, for a little while. However, I've only got two darts. Um, let's hope, you know, I'll, I'll get some, I'll order some in. I then didn't think anything of it and I was going, okay, I played with two darts for a little while. And then all of a sudden yesterday I had a, a package arrived from a, a company called Target Darts. And in it were sets of darts and shirts for me and the family, um, just with a enjoy your practice Um so I just put a little thank you on Twitter to them with a picture of me holding the darts in the shirt and just saying, you know, I'm gonna, you know, watch out here. I come Premier League, um, and then obviously this company has connections with professional darts players who obviously then saw me tweeting them, and I got I got good luck tweets from Phil Taylor and Raymond Van, Van, Van Barneveld and. <clears throat> Adrian Lewis, you know, most of the top players in the world all suddenly tweeted me, good luck, go and get them. And I foolishly had given my name Vic the Gladiator Goddard when I did a tweet. And so I had lots of, uh, go on the gladiator you can do it, um, tweets from these really famous people. I mean, Phil Taylor, to get a tweet from Phil Taylor, and I know there's always a question of being darts, being a sport or a pastime and all those sorts of things, but there's a man who excelled because of his absolute drive for excellence and practice and you know not not being allowing himself to be second best and so to get to get some people i was like blimey that's, that's amazing and of course you know harlow being a working class town it, it darts is quite a big thing um and so i had i've had lots of emails and, and messages from members of staff and things on facebook going i can't believe you got a message from phil Taylor." So yeah, it's just funny, but I, think, I you know I, I, it motivated me to do a lot of practice yesterday. I hit, I hit, a, I hit a one forty last night just before I went to bed. I've never done that before. So <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it's the crazy world of Twitter. I think when you have a when you have an audience, because like you know from doing educating, anything you say gets amplified, and you can get carried away feeling you're really important. Well, actually, it's just a number of people who are seeing it because you happen to be on their timeline. But that was that was probably my most remarkable Twitter moment I've had. I think.
0: No, I think it was a good one. I do remember the one when you said one of your teachers had won the lottery, which another which sparked off another interesting yeah. um, uh, Twitter feeds as well. That, that was an
1: so, interesting one, because my head of English, who runs our, um, our Cultural Appreciation days, we were doing one focused on fake news. And she came and said, well, I need you to put a tweet out to see how far traction you can get it. So it's got to be an interesting one. And all I could think of was, how can I, what can I tweet about that when I tell people it isn't true, isn't going to really really upset them <laughs> or is it going to get me arrested and it was it wasn't until I went into the local cult to school and I saw the lottery sign up and I went oh, that, I can do that that's not too bad so yeah I mean that was yeah just just goes to show the, the, the crazy world of social media isn't it
0: no it does which brings me nicely on to educating ethics I mean, It must have been a phenomenal experience in many different ways but why did you decide to do it what made you do it
1: I'd like to say that it was a really well thought through and considered decision Floyd, um, but I think you, in order to do that you need to have all of the <laughs> all of the information required to do that um, and, and we didn't. So I, what was originally pitched to the school was um, a very much more outside of school programme. They were talking about it being at least 50-50 if not up to 90% filmed outside of school with the school being the narrative that sort of linked them all together but Really about the, you know, as it says in the in the intro, the lives and loves of a sixteen of being a sixteen year old, um, and it was not until they'd um, come in to do their initial filming and doing some initial filming outside when they realised that teenagers can be incredibly dull, um, especially when they've got mobile devices in their hands, and so it was it, it moved really quickly from being a program based around the kids' lives, both in and out of school, to being about the dynamic of relationships within the school. Um, And so, yeah, we we said yes to something that we didn't quite um, have full knowledge of. And I guess being the first, you know, it was the first of those sort of real fly on the wall kind of programs. Um, And so we didn't know what we were letting ourselves in for. So I I guess the decision was, was, was an easy one in some ways in the fact that we just, a program called Jamie's Dream School had just been on, Jamie Oliver's Dream School. And it was basically a a bunch of really famous people in their fields supposedly showing us how it should be done. Um, And I'd been to a conference of Robert Winston. Dr. Robert Winston was speaking at the conference and he contributed to this program. He'd done a bit on science and taught on it. And he spent most of his 45, 50 minutes talking to this conference of head teachers, apologizing, apologizing for for being part of a program that basically said anybody could teach. and so yeah, it was it, it it was just one of those things that it was the right time. The school had um, was in a, a quite a secure place. we just got an outstanding from Ofsted, which was a surprise to everybody, <laughs> including me. Um, but it was in the days where contextual value added was a key measure. So we could um, you know, we it was about how how far they traveled, not where they finished, which was the most important thing. And that was good for us and remains good for us. So um yeah, we said yes in a, in a little bit of blindness, I guess, in hindsight. At the time, we thought we had all the information required, but how it evolved meant it became something very different to what it was.
0: Yeah, and what I liked there as well was that word conceptual value added. So from your perspective, is the is the vision of the school, the ethos of the school, is that the most important thing or is it getting children to get those five a to Cs at the appropriate standard.
1: Uh, the most important thing got is is the values. Anything's based on, um, you know, they are the foundations of which you can then decide where you go. So um, a vision is great, but vision comes from values. Um, you know, part of a vision will include outcomes, and outcomes. Part of outcomes is 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 GCSEs. Um, it is you know getting those grades. So that's. That's important too, um, but it isn't everything. And I guess that for me, what do we stand for? What do we believe in? What's the thing that's gonna um, gonna be consistent, no matter what else we do? What's the things that are gonna be consistent? And for me, that's those values are the key thing. So the rest of it comes from that. You know, for me, the value that schools are communities, and they are communities in their own right, but they also form form part of a wider community. And our responsibility to each other is really important. But our, our social responsibility to the wider community is also important. And, that, and for me, that's where it starts. And what's our responsibilities towards each other? What's our responsibilities to the community? From there, we can build We can build what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. But until you've made your mind up about, you know, I think in, you know, in Jim Collins' book, they call it the hedgehog principle. Um, what's the thing you're going to be known for? What's the thing that's going to going to keep your organisation doing the same things, being the same way. um, For me, that that has got to come first.
0: No, I agree. And it's interesting. I've now worked with thousands of children. I've been fortunate to work throughout the United Kingdom and I've I've travelled abroad um, talking about experiences and adventures being one of the key aspects of life. And when we were discussing it earlier, you were talking about the experiences that you were given, because I think that's really important. I also believe that it's rare I come across a child that doesn't have actually ambition. They may lose it slightly as they get older, but ultimately it's about our ability to listen to them and provide them with those mechanisms so they can understand what those, what their passions, what their drivers are today and i've been in harlow and worked with obviously your schools and a number of other schools and again i've I've been amazed at that high aspirational level which we sometimes underestimate what are your thoughts on that
1: i I, it's interesting when i first started working in harlow um and first got into sort of slt role one of the things that was probably on every head teacher's school development plan across the town was raising aspirations Um, and in hindsight um, they don't need their aspirations raising. I think a lot of that was about us considering whether their aspirations were, were, were high enough. Um, and that could be in you know what job they want to do. I remember doing a, um, a PSHE lesson in, in the first school I worked at in Harlow, and I asked the young people to, to write down their dream job, not not the job they think they, they're going to get, but they're, you know they're the job they really want. And there were, there were some down there, you know, wanting to work in a shop, wanting to, you know, be a, be a bricklayer and stuff like that. And I remember at the time saying to them, yeah, but what about owning the business? What about, what about being the person in charge and, and having that as an aspiration? And the reality was that I think probably we were doing them a disservice because they saw that as being out of reach at that time. And that what they wanted to do was to have security. They wanted an income. They wanted, And because that's the lives they were leading. And probably as, you know, university-educated people, we, we've got this view that aspiration has to be about a, at a certain level. But actually, I, I don't agree with that. When, you, when your boiler's not working, there's nobody more important in the world than a plumber. Um, and, you know, being the son of a plumber, uh, that, that's quite close to my heart. And so I think, I think that whole aspiration thing and, and, you know, high challenge, but challenge is appropriate for these young people in their journey. Because, you know, once they become a successful plumber, then who says their next step isn't? And we've got to give them the, the education, you know, English and math specifically, but, you know, the, the other parts of education as well that, allow, that will allow them to make that decision in the future when they're ready for it. And, you know, we push children into planning their futures really quite hard at a young age rather than going, OK, you know, how can we keep all of our options open? How can we keep our aspirations as broad as possible? Because at 13, OK, yes, yeah, some people do know what they want to do, but many don't, they have a vague sort of field they wanna go into. So I, I think it's important that we don't as university educated, generally middle-class people, um, think that uh, that aspiration is not good enough for them. And I think that if, if we stop that and start celebrating what they want to do, I think that'll take a little bit of pressure off everybody um, because there is no doubt that some young people where they set a target too high and they can't reach it, that's really demotivating. So small steps and that includes in aspirations I think
0: No I totally agree, I was very fortunate to come and speak to um, all of the teachers and support staff um, that you have and I spoke about them also having their their aspirations what did you find from that talk, what do you think of the benefits of the talk that we gave on using the compass as a model what, what benefits did it have for the staff that we had that day I, I think the interesting thing for me was that some staff
1: found it really difficult and I wasn't expecting that um you know when it was it was the first so we've done 10 sort of staff mat sort of conferences so it started off just with my school and we took them off somewhere and did a day's training and then as this, as we went from being a standalone school to a single to an academy to a multi-academy trust it's it's the 10th one we've done with all the staff and and i mean all of the staff we invite everybody there for the for the day and normally we did a little bit at the beginning you know i'd stand up and do a little welcome and uh, you know try and a little bit of motivation and then they'd all break off to their own their own little areas so we'd have our site staff going to do cost training and we'd have the the midday assistants kind of to do you know some behavior management stuff and things like that and i was really really desperate to have one where we were all the same because despite trying to make it feel like um their individual needs were being catered for what it actually felt like when i spoke to them was well the teachers get to stay in the big room with the big person that you've paid the most for, and everybody else gets to go off into the little side rooms. And I hadn't thought of it that way. I thought I was being kind, and I thought I was being um, smart in giving them what they wanted. And actually what they wanted was to feel part of the whole. So that's the first thing it gave us, Floyd, which you wouldn't know, and and I sort of recognised last year, hence I was desperate to have you lead something, which I knew they could all access, and everybody could access, you know, this, this, you know, your your view of where you're going in life and what you want to achieve, that's something we could all do. Um, so that was the first thing. Second thing was that some people did find it difficult. Um, they weren't ready to to think about the future like that, I think. And they had to think about it in a slightly different way and break it down into smaller parts, I think. And that, you, you know, you did that beautifully throughout the process. But for some, they needed to be ready for that. That was another thing. And the other, th- I think the third thing is that um, lots of people, Left that feeling energized with a, a purpose, and that I think was you know your aim. You, you know, wasn't what the purpose was. It was just to have a purpose, um, and it's cost me a bit of money since. You know, I've had lots of lots of teachers come and say, I'd like to do this. This is all my. This is my north, This is part of my north star journey, and I need to do this before I can do that. But I need you to, need to help fund something or we need to buy a different piece of equipment or something else. So that's, it's been slightly expensive, but, um, but really empowering. And I think that was the key thing for me. When, if you don't know where you're going, you wander around and it just to give people that focus. But I'll be honest, the the biggest thing I took away from it was we were one staff and we all had our own different aspirations and they were all very personal, but we were one staff and we all had those things, no matter if you were the head teacher or if you were the Know, an MDA or a cleaner, there were still things you wanted to achieve, and none none of them were more important than the other. And that was that was a real positive takeaway from from the whole day.
0: No, I totally agree. And what I was pleased with is, and I want to know your thoughts on this. How have you managed to maintain the individuality of each of those different groups? Because sometimes when I come across businesses that combine businesses together. They they don't always do that as well. So that ability to have that collegiate approach, where you're all pointing in the same direction, how do you think you've done that, Vic? By individuality within terms of their own, their each of the schools, but how you've brought them together to have a bit of a brand.
1: I guess firstly is it's about each of the schools having their own leadership. um Leadership from the centre is, is important in some ways and can be and can be more efficient and I think that's important to recognise. But actually, you know, we're four. My is four schools in the same town, all within you know half a mile of each other. Um, so the reality is, we serve very very similar communities. Obviously, slightly different within the town, but very similar communities um, and very similar young people. I guess what what for us and and the trust board that. So sort of agreed and, and set all this up that it was very much about them keeping their identity and how do you do that well leadership is how you keep identity in lots of ways so for them to have their own head teachers for them to have their own governing bodies for them to have a have a focus on their school and not to worry about being part of the whole on most days actually they should feel exactly the same as they did before they become part of a map um, on a day-to-day basis but then Pulling people together, being able to able to understand their place within a larger organization, but also how that large organization can support them and can, can nurture them. Um, and that's really what that 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 conference day is about. It's about saying, look, you know, for most of the year, you're on your own, you're getting on with it, your individual schools, it's great, we trust you to do your job. But just for this day, we're gonna to come together and we're gonna look at what we can achieve together, what we can how, you know, how much stronger we are as a group, and actually that even though at times Being alone is the right way. Being alone is also lonely. Um, So then saying, actually, I've got big brothers and big, you know, big sisters, and I've got other people around me who are living through exactly the same as we're living through on a day-to-day basis. But when we come together, we we're part of a whole. And and for me, that 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 mix of autonomy at a a sort of day-to-day level, and then a a collegiality at a sort of more strategic and sort of longer-term level, is the right balance.
0: No, I, I I do agree with you. You've been, uh, uh, you've passed comment on the government on a number of occasions, Vic, in a number of different ways. Mm. What do you think the government have done well? What do you think the government have done well in terms of your your connection with them as a head teacher? Um,
1: I think there was a need. Um, I'm going to go back to Michael Gove days. So that's, you know, that's almost 10 years ago. Um I think there was a need to to get a hold of the assessment system and to make sure that um, we weren't losing focus on the key lifelong skills that were needed. So now that focus on, on English and maths, um, which was there in the performance measures before, but was definitely brought into sharper focus under Michael Gove. I think that it was long overdue. We were sort of meandering a little bit, I think, and we, were, we ended up wasting um, Quite a lot of time and energy and money um, chasing um, sort of different things, different assessment regimes, and different sort of um, ways of getting qualifications, which weren't always going to be the most helpful, but they were um, the option at the time. So you took it. So I think a streamlining of of that was the right thing to do back then. Um, I think I think there is there's an element of the academy system in it being about you know autonomous and um and really focused on the community which is really what academies in the originals format you know the tony blair academies was about putting these schools with a little bit more freedom into spaces where there was underachievement in order for them to make the most of those freedoms to to meet the needs of their community i think that was right and then the conservative government coming in and then obviously expanding that away from areas of need into actually, they flipped it completely in its head and you had to be an outstanding school to become an academy originally in their, in their first ones, that, that sort of jump between being a, academies being in, a, in areas of deprivation and being focused on very specific communities to being open to everybody. I can see the logic in that too. I can see the logic in why we, why we tie in the hands of, sort of leaders and communities that know what they need to do to, to move on. Um, I think it could have been done in different ways, don't get me wrong. But I think that, that rationale behind it was probably the right one as well. You know, there are lots of really bright people in the schools who know what their communities need and actually to be tied to certain ways of having to do stuff because it's in the national curriculum um, was actually quite limiting, I think, and, and didn't necessarily enable these schools to, to grow and flourish in the way they could. I think the problem we've now got is we haven't got enough scrutiny of these and unfortunately not all leaders are. Going to be doing things for the right reasons and power is as always can be you know can be a can be a problem if it's if it's used badly so I think there's there's a balance to be done but I don't disagree with actually releasing schools from from the sort of confines of a national curriculum wasn't the right thing to do because I think it was
0: excellent what's your biggest success in teaching what's your biggest success in teaching well as a teacher um
1: I think as, so as a PE teacher specifically, because that was when I spent the most time in the classroom, there were 10, 10 young people that I taught went on to be PE teachers. And uh, that, that for me was... Um, yeah, that, that was a big thing. That was a big thing. Because I became a PE teacher because of my teachers. And so to think that um, young people that I was interacting with thought of me in a way that I thought of my teachers...
0: Yeah, that's, that's it. I'm getting a bit emotional, which is really I'm tired, no, think, I'm maybe I'm tired. But I think, well, you know, you when are, I look back at it. You are generally the one crying on educating Essex anyway. So that's what I love about <laughs> you. Is that you, you um, I'm, you I'm constantly tired. right, I've
1: tired and emotional. And emotional. Yeah, I,
0: I think you are, that's what's really good is your authenticity. And I, and I genuinely do mean that. It's your authenticities because we're going to get the person that you are. And that's in any engagement, even uh, when we're, uh, uh, we're talking like this. What's your worst, what's your worst experience? Um,
1: the death of, of young people in, in my care, not whilst they were with me, but we had um, one of the reasons behind educating happening was we just had a, a year 10 young man pass away. Um, in the months preceding the phone call from from the channel, um, a young man called Jamie Bone, and Jamie was amazing, um, one of life's energy givers, a radiator if you must, um, And but he'd been kept back in primary school um, because of he had some really quite severe medical needs around his heart, but also specific learning needs as well, and so he'd been kept back a year at primary school and then came to secondary school and had been doing really well. He was he was dropped off every day into reception by his mum and his his stepdad and then picked up from there. So it would always be in reception at the start and of I And mean, I'd often find myself in reception just to see Jamie um, because he made me feel better, I think. Um, you know, talking to him was, was a real privilege. And so, um, yeah, he passed away. Um, his heart gave in, unfortunately. And the, the, the channel phone not long after that, and we'd had a, a bit of a, a term of... Um, Talking to the kids about taking risks, talking to the kids about you know not being scared to take opportunities because life's short, you know. Look at Jamie, life's short, and so when the channel phoned up and and we said, you know, we uh, put, with no doubt that Jamie was part of the thinking process in that in the fact that why not, why why not take a risk? You know, what is the risk? Is it one that's worth taking? And I think that that he was a real influence in that actually happened. You know, so when he when he um when he had his funeral, his mum and dad bought. Brought the procession to school. Um, he wanted; they want him to visit school again it's before. Um, and having twelve hundred young people lining the street as his coffin came past was, God, that was a hard day. <laughs> that was that was a really really hard day. Um, and we've had um, a couple of young men take their own lives, not whilst they were at school, but in the year after they left school. Um, and that's been tough because you want to you know you want to rationalize that and you want to help young people rationalize that and and for me that that journey was um are we too nurturing you know that that question came into my head you know pastmore's is a school that picks kids up when they fall over um and and if if a young person gets used to being picked up and not being told how to not to fall down again um they come reliant on that and uh, and you you do question whether um your over nurture leads to over reliance and then when that when that nurturing isn't there, what are they are they left alone. And so they they've been difficult. That's been really difficult.
0: I think that's a great question. And it's one I come across probably in every aspect of the work that I do, whether that's in business, sports, being the military government, and it's down to the having the, the right environment, which is high support and high challenge. And that is the balance that is generally required. That's what the research suggests, making sure that you've yeah. got to give people the skills, the nurturing, be there to allow them to grow in a safe environment. And once they've got the, the resources, and that's the skill for me is having the right resources, what can then happen is you can then challenge them. You can then push them to, to see how far they can grow to allow them to take those risks, or those opportunities, and to learn from them. So that's always um, an interesting balance and and always difficult to do, um, always difficult. Can I ask what do you a question, think? Floyd?
1: Yeah, of course. Can I ask can. you a question? You, you, you've yes. led lots of you know, men and women, I'm sure, um, knowing full well that some of them won't come back, and I'm sure you've had some not come back under your leadership. How do you manage that? Because I know I know that's what people sign up for when they go into the military. I understand that. But the reality is they're still human beings and so are you. And they've still got families. And you're making decisions that ultimately
0: you know some aren't going to come back from. How do you manage that? I, I think probably the thought that came straight into my mind there was not necessarily... Um, when I've worked with professional soldiers that's and, and the principles are the same was when I worked with a lot of reserve soldiers and I was tasked with on one particular wow. um, mission was to take a group of reserve soldiers. So again, people that were teachers, were bank managers, were plumbers, um, swept the roads. They were, but they were people that wanted to do the military service in their part time. And I was asked to take them away to a, uh, to a quite a tough conflict zone. And I spent a lot of time with them going through this process because for a professional soldier, you have to take those those consequences as being part of your yeah. job. But even for a reserve soldier, yeah. the fact that today you're a bank manager, but within in a few months time, you are going to be working behind enemy lines or you're going to be in a very difficult situation actually incurs some different consequences, different thought processes. However, I'd always come back to the one responsibility I had as a leader was to make sure they were prepared for the environment that they're going to operate in so that they had their compass. now, And for me, it's really clear, That's which which is why I use the compass as a model, is I need them to know why they're here, that they want to be here, that this is part of something that they want to do because it is for a greater thing, a a bigger thing. It then is about making sure the right plan's in place, but most importantly, they have the skill sets to operate in this environment. And it's making sure that, again, it's about a basic set of skills, as you were talking about, English and maths and and the different... um, qualifications and, and skills we need today to adapt and move into different environments because most children today will do five to seven different jobs so they do need to have that flexibility so skill sets are important i then want to make sure that they have the right physical and mental resilience to apply those skills under pressure but the pressure environment still safe they can still make mistakes and the, there's still a little yeah. bit of coaching but generally, they're just getting to feel that there's a bit more pressure here. I need them to operate at a slightly higher standard. I need fewer mistakes. And then finally, again, in that still a safe environment, but it's a testing environment. I am not going to support you anymore. What I expect you to do is get over the minimum standards and the minimum standards are non-negotiable. You will either pass or you will fail. And there's a clear defining line. You have to have consequences in training as we have consequences in life. And people need to realize there is a consequence for not getting over the line. It doesn't mean you're not in the best in the top 10%. As long as you're over the line, that is good enough. But I think once you've done that, my view on all of this was I always wanted to just turn around and go, I have done everything, everything humanly possible yeah. to make you the best soldier that you can be. And actually, if you make a mistake now or something goes wrong, it probably will be that somebody's just better than you. And we, there's nothing we can foresee in that. But if I've done my job, then the vast majority of people will come back safe and sound.
1: But I, I just that I, I absolutely understand everything you say there about you know prepping and making sure they've got the best possibilities to be a success. But if I'm honest, if they're not a success in my environment, generally that means they've got a, a four instead of a five in their GCSE. In your environment, that's a, a much bigger consequence. I I just I, I don't know how I'd rationalise that. I think it's remarkable that you know I, I know it's, it's a job. It's,
0: it's an interesting dynamic, but again, I think it, it it is that as long as I've done my job in training, and again, I think it's the same. and It's a strange thing. So in business, people will say the same. Floyd, you're talking about life and death here. The thing, what I'd say to you, if yeah. if you take an instance now, I've been I run a number of businesses, and I've spent as many time as many days over the last two or three weeks worrying about my workforce and making mistakes and the fact that this is life-changing and yes you're quite right it's not life and death but most soldiers do not believe that's going to happen to them otherwise you're right we probably wouldn't go uh, and go behind enemy lines or fight in in certain ways and um, so it's about realizing that these everything we do has consequences we do have impact you as teachers have such a massive impact on people's life it's life-changing as you've just pointed out people gave you that encouragement yeah. to go and do what you have done in life and and of course steering people and you know the fact that we can lose life and luckily <laughs> I think by giving people the right education definitely is the most important thing and then skills and tools to become mentally and physically resilient I think then you give them the best opportunity in life and then unfortunately life does have to take care of itself and that's just the way of the world moving forward so that's how I probably rationalize it.
1: Thank you I, it just it always intrigues me I just you, when you look at other people other leaders and other things you, you just think well how on earth do you manage that but I guess it's it is about making sure you do your processes right
0: yeah just doing the best job that you possibly can and as long as you've put up the effort in to do that and you can look at yourself in the mirror and say I've done everything I possibly could then I think that's fair I think that's all you can look at in this case is that's that's fair so what are you actually doing now to make sure you're still improving as a leader but what are you doing to make sure you're still improving i
1: guess it's it's about looking out for me um you know i'm really fortunate as you know as you know on twitter i've got a, a you know a big group of um really supportive people sort of a own network of people some that you know people don't see because it's all done through dm but having um being challenged by other people's thinking is the biggest thing for me i look at you know i, I i'm on social media i'm on twitter specifically because I look a lot more than I actually add I'm over the last couple of weeks. I've been trying to add more because I think talking is important, but often I'm, I'm just looking and reading what other people are doing. Look at other people's blogs being tested by what other people are doing for me has been the key, you know, it's putting almost, you know, giving them putting yourself up against them in your mind and going, okay, well they're doing that. Why am I not doing that? Why have I decided that's the case? And, and having, a really varied network of people with from different sort of school backgrounds, different leadership sort of styles, um, different communities, and and sort of being able to cherry pick from what they do is is one of the biggest bonuses of the social media sort of bubble that you end up being in. And, and I'm really quite um, keen that I don't I don't shut down people that I don't necessarily have the same viewpoint as you know. And I, I've I've learned I've been challenged just as much when reading stuff from the you know somebody who's the head of a grammar school or somebody who works in the independent sector um, and what they're doing and thinking okay why are we not doing that could we do that should we do that so for me it's it's about just being outward outward looking really you know having having the opportunity to, to invite people like you along to come and talk to staff and talk to me and, and to think about you know well what why have you made the choices you've made and, and should we be making similar ones so it is just about being being heads up as much as possible.
0: Yeah, we're both fortunate. We're part of some large leadership groups as well, <clears throat> and we had a great chat the other day with some outstanding leaders. So I think that's uh, got to be one of the most yeah. important things: learning and again stealing as much as we possibly can from all these very talented people that surround us. You're probably really proud I don't think
1: had of any in my life, Lloyd. You know, I, I look at I look at the stuff. I don't I look at stuff we've done. I don't think I've had a unique thought ever. I think they've all been stolen from other people (laughs) Um, and that I'm very happy with that. That saves me a lot of pain.
0: And I know it is, I know it is where I'm concerned. So that's why I'm smiling as well. Um, One of the things you must be really proud of at the moment is the way that your staff have dealt with this situation. And again, I think it's one of those moments in time where we do get to realise how talented the teachers that we have around us actually are and what they do for our children. So I hope it sort of reinvigorates that belief that teachers really should be put on a pedestal in, in the sense of what they actually give to the community is phenomenal in so many different ways. But now more so than ever, where we've got teachers, again, putting themselves into a situation which could be um, difficult for them and still trying to do the best they can to keep the country running. What are your thoughts around that at the moment?
1: Do you know the thing that's... That's been the most remarkable for me it isn't it's, it's, a, it's their bravery. Teachers and, and education professionals are being brave right now because we're going into schools with young people who are living in households of high risk people. you know so if they're, if they're children of NHS workers or delivery drivers or Tesco's workers, wherever it may be, those children are the highest risk of being having symptoms. even if they're asymptomatic, they are the highest risk young people in the country. And, you know, I haven't forced any of my staff to volunteer to, to come in and do work. They've all volunteered. You know, so we are supervising in school, obviously. And actually, we're doing that without PPE. We're doing that without the thought of what is the risk of these young people having the coronavirus and therefore affecting me. We we heard of um, the first loss uh, to the virus linked to school literally last night. Um, it was a grandparent of one of our young people. And... You know if you want to bring something into sharp focus that that really does it um, and so for me it's, it's the bravery of teachers across and it's not just teachers it's, it's the premises people who open up it's the cleaners who clean up after but people involved in education right now are putting the, the the country above themselves and above their families in many cases and that's that can't be forgotten you know, people are dying in their thousands of this and education professionals are choosing to go into an environment of higher risk because it's the right thing to do. And we really, really can't forget that.
0: No, and I, I think what's really what's really interesting about this is and when you're asking me how do I how do I cope with the decisions that I, I make when it comes to training and and sending people to do their job. It's exactly the same, which is why I think sometimes we underestimate what we do as leaders and what you're doing, is you're training these people up But what they believe in. They believe in a cause, a situation that's bigger than themselves. And you can see the same thing as you're sending brave people into a situation because, one, it's the right thing to do, uh, and also we need to do it. And again, that's one of the wonderful things about, for me, being part of the United Kingdom is all of our people. I have seen them work at the highest levels in so many different environments, which is why I'm I'm always uh, very, very proud to be part, um, part of this country. And so it's important that we realise what teachers are doing. What I'd like to do is just thank you so much for coming on this podcast, Vic. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope people... Have really got an insight into what teachers are doing, uh, but also, and in, in more importantly, what great leaders um, you are as well. Are there any questions for me at all, Vic? Before we um, got, close this, time? I've got one big one. Right, obviously you've been involved in in
1: training leaders in in many settings, um, but in a very much a hands-on setting with regard to the military and with education. Now, because I see the work you're doing, if you were to if you were to say just one or two things that you see. That's similar or identical in the best leaders in the military world and the best leaders in the educational world. What's what's the sort the the, the the real things that that is goes across any of those areas that you see in the leaders?
0: Right. without a doubt. And I can I can give you something. And, and again, one of the things I would say I do think being a leader in education is one of the toughest environments I've seen because of the things you've got to put up with from government from from parents, from teachers, from students, it does make it a difficult job. So the best leaders in both environments most definitely know where they want to take the school or indeed the organization. they have a clear super north star. It's really clear. This is what we're going to do. And in your case, it's about that development. It's about the journey of the child arriving and going out at a much higher level than they arrived at. Uh, And that's in a caring and supportive environment. It's exactly the same in the military. It's about making sure that we develop people. We develop them, not just the student, not just those, but the people around us. So it's development of the team. And that is about having the right values, having really a clear set of values that are non-negotiable and hold up under pressure. Most importantly, they hold up under pressure. It's about having trust, great passionate debate. But it's also about being really clear that there's a set standard. And if somebody doesn't meet it, there's support for them. But also making sure that if this is not the journey for them, that they are guided on a different journey because we need to have the right people in the team. They are most definitely resilient. So in moments like this, they have the resources to turn around and make the correct decisions. They don't have to wait for people. They... um, they win friends and influence people because they can communicate effectively. They've got great communication skills to bring people with them because it's the right thing to do. And at the highest levels, they they lead without authority because you've just been selected. You're the right type of person. We know where we're going. Therefore, I don't have to tell you what to do, mm-hmm. but I'm prepared to do it if I have to. And those are the ones that are the most rounded leaders. And there is no difference in the military, or in schools as a head, that's got to be the key. Very, very collegiate, collective, but they're also decision makers. Leadership without authority is an interesting phrase. Well, what I mean by it is because this is the right thing to do. So when we all buy into the purpose, so when we all buy into what you're trying to do at Passmore's, what you're doing as a community, people set a different standard. They Mm -hmm. then don't want to let their colleagues down. They then want to make sure that they are being the best they can be because they're raising standards. One of the groups that I'm still probably most closely associated with in a lot of respects is the special air service. What we definitely have within that group is a belief that the collective is the most important thing and we don't want to let each other down. So most most leaders, although they could lead with authority, they don't need to. Yeah. We're on first name terms. It's because it's the right thing to do. And when there's challenging conversations, we have those. But the minute the leader says, this is what we're doing, people commit behind that. And we hold each other accountable. I think the most important thing here is when you get leadership without authority, it's because everybody in the team are setting the right standards so that you don't fall below them. And again, I would say that probably in most of the armed forces, we've got people that probably did leave school without many qualifications, but the standards that are set mean that we demand that you now go and learn. You do hit a higher level of performance, both academically and physically. And because that's non-negotiable, because you don't want to let people down, you step up. It's not to do with the leader. It's to do with your colleagues. That's really interesting. I was asked a question in an interview once where
1: they said, um, I remember it really clearly, my first promoted post, and the deputy said, give me a score out of 10 for your discipline and behaviour management. And I remember saying back to him, I said, it's a four or a five because that's all it needs to be, but there's a 10 if I need it. And I, and I, I think that's probably what you're, you're talking about. You don't need to sort of display authority over people because everybody's on the same bus and therefore you don't need to worry about that because they're all going to do the right thing.
0: No, that's the perfect way to explain it. You're a, you're a four or a five. If I have to be ten, I'll be a ten. Right. That's exactly the way to explain it. Interesting. That's really thank you, Floyd. I really I was, that that question was burning in my head. Thank you, Vic. Um, again, all I can say is thank you very much. Please pass on my thanks to all your staff as well. I think you're uh, you're doing a phenomenal, outstanding job. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye bye.